Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It is episode number 269 of the podcast. We are in our 10th week of reading the book, A Game of Thrones, by George R. R. Martin in the Song of Ice and Fire series. This week we are covering the chapters Daenerys 4, Bran 5, Tyrion 5, and Eddard 10. My name is Matt Murdock, and I'm from PodcastWinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find... Nice little things like contact and social media links and also podcatcher links. And if you take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or on Stitcher, I will thank you in this very spot. I say that every week. And lately, nobody's left me a review. What's wrong with you people? Leave me a review. Don't re-review. If you've left a review before, unless your thoughts about this podcast have drastically changed, then I understand if you want to redo your review. But don't just, you know, redo your review to, you know, make me all excited thinking that I got a new review um, when you're just rehashing what you said before. (laughs) Wow, that's a good way to ask for reviews. Anyway, uh, we are reading Game of Thrones, and uh, I do want to remind you that we will have sporadic theory casts, hopefully uh, at least one before the next uh, TV season starts. Uh, I've got someone with me here who is uh, diligently been waiting for us to be able to get the crew back together to do another Grand Northern Conspiracy podcast. We're still trying to work out a time that we can all get together to do that. But we, we, will, we will try to get at least one of those out before uh, the television show comes out because I have no idea. Uh, none of us have any idea what's going to happen really too much as far as Season 6 goes. Um, so uh, that theory may be put to bed by the television show before, <laughs> uh, before the books uh, put it to bed, or it may be validated by the television show before the, uh, the books uh, can be validated. So we want to get that at least one more of those theory casts in um, before the television season starts. I also want to remind everyone, uh, you know, all of you in the chat, uh, that would be Ion Throne. Ion Throne, thank you for coming to the chat. I want to remind you guys that we are talking about this book uh, with the reference of anything in, up to season five of the television show that coincides with the story in the books. If things are drastically different, uh, for instance, if a certain character never exists um, but is an amalgamation of, of several characters, well, we might talk about that. But if the character is in a totally different place, um, then we probably won't talk about that. We're just trying to save stuff that is book-only or book-specific for a spoiler section at the end. Uh, But everything else, if it it has been related in the television show, is fair game. So please catch up with the TV show uh, before listening to this podcast if you're reading along with us and don't want to be spoiled of events. I only have one guest this week. We want to say real quickly, we're hoping that Stephanie uh, feels better. She sent me a message earlier today saying that 
she uh, was not feeling well, so we wish her well. Um, everybody give her a tweet, S, at SM Persephone on Twitter, saying, feel better soon, Stephanie. And uh, we also uh, want to acknowledge that Bubba had too many shrooms last week uh, when he broke out his uh, Ned uh, plus Liana equals John theory. Uh, and so uh, I think he's a little ill from that himself. Actually, I think Bubba just has something else to do. But that's Bubba from the Joffrey Podcast, and it is my contractual obligation uh, to say his Twitter handle at least twice. So at F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. That's at Fit and Trim, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Somebody who we do have this week, and, uh, of course, she's the one who's been preparing the Grand Northern Conspiracy uh, next edition of the podcast for us and has been with us every week on, on the Game of Thrones read, which can be. We welcome back the lovely Kelly. How are you? Hi, Matt. I can't believe you nearly like made me flip table. I was thinking about when you just said that the show is going to spoil this whole Grand Northern conspiracy, and I had not even considered that until you said that. And I was real glad I was on mute because you would have heard bottles crashing, and I'm probably hit a cat. I don't own a cat. Somehow I hit a cat and it got upset. I was very mad. <laughs> I put a lot of work into those and I think that it's going to be spoiled before we finish it. Uh, well, yeah, that's why we definitely have to get that down uh, before the TV show starts. I am available. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am not in February, folks. This is our second to last podcast before we have a three-week hiatus. Also, I guess I should mention uh, we do. Uh, I, I do have some more touring that I have to do, and there's just no way that I can work in doing any podcasting uh, for a good portion of the month of February. But I promise we will try our best to get uh, one of those great theory casts in uh, in March, or at very least uh, early April, before the television show returns. By the way, I, I just want to say it came across uh, people were tweeting about it on my timeline today. Uh, Kelly... Have you seen those uh, little banner teasers for like the Targaryen and the uh, uh, Lannister and the Stark? It has the banners and it has people saying uh, words about the houses or whatever. No, I didn't. So this is on your Facebook? Uh, no, this is on. Uh, this is uh, actually it came across my Twitter feed today. Uh, Game of Thrones are on their YouTube channel. You can see they're, they're just little banner teasers. So as, as a fan of the television show, you may want to check those out. And, and any, any of our listeners, of course, who are fans of the television show, you may want to check those out. They're not highly informational. It is kind of interesting that the one uh, for Daenerys, um, the people who are talking are all speaking in Dothraki, and you have to get a translation for them. Kind of rad. Yeah. Hey, hi. There's yeah. a little hype campaign. Yeah, it's just a little hype campaign. Much better than the thing last year where you had, you know, one look on your phone to see a little flash of something that I, my phone was too small to really be able to see them very well. <laughs> I never catch that stuff. I, yeah. I need I need you guys to keep me in the loop. I'm always nosing the book oh. until the episode comes. I'm too impatient. Well, I, I am I am assuming that our friends at Podcast Littlefell will be uh, addressing some of that stuff this year to yeah. keep you up to speed. Uh, so. Yeah, be sure to check out Axel and Heath and Donald and DJ Tim and Mike over there. Um, okay, I think I've babbled long enough, uh, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, neither of us really have a whole lot to do on these chapters, but why don't we try and, and dive in, into them anyway. Here is Daenerys 4 to start. 
And your chapter summary is as follows. Daenerys rides with Ser Jorah, hearing stories about Westeros and the Dothraki as they get to the Dothraki homeland. On arrival, she tries to make up with Viserys, but his insult forces a showdown between them, and she instead finishes her day cuddling dragon eggs. Uh, what do you got for me, Kelly? Well, uh, momentous moment, though, is that we are halfway through the book. I think this chapter marks the halfway point. Ah. That's kind of nice that uh, we've made it that far. <laughs> we, um, and, oh, I did look, because I have, like, a whole, obviously, a spreadsheet of all the, like, the chapter lengths and stuff, just, like, word count, and that uh, Catelyn chapter was the longest, so don't worry. There's nothing any longer than that after this in this book. <laughs> so don't worry. We're, it's all easy from here, I think. I think they're all real good. This one was um, nice. We haven't seen Danny in, like, 13 chapters, I think it was. So uh, we kind of get the impression that they've been doing the same thing from the last time we saw her, which was in, um, like, it's something about they were in the the far reaches of the Dothraki Sea at that point, and that's when she found out she was pregnant. So now she's, her belly is big enough now that Viserys threatens her and says, do you think that big belly will protect you if you wake the dragon? So she's showing. So I think that that's kind of an indicator of time. And if you look at a map, you can kind of figure out why it took this long to get there and why maybe we haven't seen her since then because it's probably just, they rode horses. They saw grass. They rode horses. They ate horses. They saw <laughs> But I think that's about all that's happened since then. But yeah, and then... um. You kind of get some of the Dothraki culture uh, thrown at us here that we kind of haven't really had this side of them before. This neat way that uh, George makes characters and, and these distinct cultures almost seem relatable. And I think that they kind of have this like human nature consistent thing with them that they have a stationary place. Even though they're nomads, they, all have, they have a place that they come to and that they... Um, look up to their elders, and it's kind of uh, where the Dashkaleen, uh, yeah, the Dashkaleen, yeah, where they are revered, and some of these things that are kind of like, even though they're so foreign, this, these Dothraki, like, they still have these familiar human nature qualities, um, and even though that's super familiar, what's super foreign about them that I like was the, that they, <laughs> they don't build anything. They have, um, all of these, uh, when she's going down, the, I think it's called the God's Way, she called it, and it's with all the statues and all of the fallen gods that, that the Dothraki have conquered, and they bring it back to this area, and none of it's their own, but they bring it to this place as, like, symbols of conquest or something, and it kind of gives you a taste of this whole ethos that we never really get to explore because we're so wrapped up in Westeros, so it's so exotic. Ooh. It's funny because uh, they have the, the little bit in there also about how um, the slaves that they bring, they just have them build stuff if they're going to build anything. And so the slaves only build what they, they know, where they're from, or what they do. So uh, all of the buildings are like completely different from each other. you know. Uh, and I started thinking about the Dothraki, and I, I realized that the Dothraki are just the Borg. They're conquerors. <laughs> they steal everybody else's stuff and, and, and make it their own. Um, and so, yeah, the Dothraki are the Borg. That's the conclusion I came to. Yeah, they destroy life and they, they take the, 
to become drones or, or they take all the slaves basically and make them uh, bring their, their cultural identity to enhance their own back in their um, holy Baz Dothrak. Yes. Hopefully, you're such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> totally true, though. No, that's a really good analogy. I, yeah. I hadn't thought of that, and I'm proud to call you my friend. So. Oh, oh, well, <laughs> I, I'm just glad that I didn't get slammed for saying Star Trek before I said Star Wars in this particular edition of the podcast. That's all. No, I haven't even seen it yet. I know. You still haven't seen the Star Wars movie yet? don't know the last time I saw a movie in the theater. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> okay. Well, last I heard, they were talking about a possible release date in April. That'll probably get pushed back a little bit, but I don't know. We'll see. Maybe you'll get it then. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. Did you think of anything from the, did you, I read, the, kind of looked at the deities that they had statues of, trying to see if there was anything in there. And the only one that sounded kind of vaguely familiar was a stone king looked down from on her from their thrones, their faces chipped and stained, even though even their names lost in the midst of time. Very poetic, but it also kind of sounded Westerosi. I just wondered where those came from, because it doesn't, I don't feel like King's common in Essos. Yeah, that does seem a little odd. Um, but when would it, when would the, I mean, would that, the implication that it's old might mean, um, if you know your your histories or you've watched the history in Blu-rays, I believe there was kind of a land bridge um, that the first men used actually to come over to Westeros, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, before the the, the long night, or was it after that? No, it was after that. It was more modern. It was like the yeah, it was the fight of the children with the um, yeah, yeah. It had to be before the long night because uh, the first men fought during the long night, also. So. The land bridge. The, I think it was during the Andals, the fight with the Andals. They, um, do you think, or do you think it was the, the first one? I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember either. Well, at, at, at any rate, uh, my thought, thought, here's my yeah. thought though: is that if that land bridge could the Dothraki have used that at at one point and come over and, and conquered some of the first men? Or yeah, or even just the the culture spread, and you know, you some of your family went across this. This you know this causeway or this land bridge, and I guess it wouldn't be considered like a land bridge at the time because it's just connected. But <laughs> you go across it and you say, "Hey, I want to meet my family, my ancestors. I will bring them this giant, I don't know, uh, chair with a king on it. I don't know, this giant statue, and leave it over here." Could have been. Like they just they brought it back to their ancestors, and that was where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thought. Solving that mystery for me. I'm going to call that my canon. <laughs> here, here, here was the nice subtle thing that I, I just love throughout this chapter is, is how Viserys is like going things like the dragon is not mocked, and the Dothraki people have been mocking him ever since Danny made him walk. <laughs> oh, he's so oblivious. I don't know if he's just arrogant or like willfully ignorant, or he is. I mean, they don't. I think he thinks that in his mind this situation around him is below beneath him but he doesn't realize that he's in it and therefore he is the lowest man in the totem pole here even though like you know because his in his mind he's like well this is just you know a step on the ladder back to my rightful civilization mm-hmm. whereas this is his reality and in this moment of reality like he is 
like a joke, the Cart King and the Sorefoot King. Do you think he's aware of it at all? I'm just like. No, I I was under the impression that he's not. That he just doesn't know the 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 language well enough to uh, to understand what they're saying. It makes him such a joke. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I I, I was laughing a lot at the at the at the Viserys stuff because I I mean there's there's implications of that kind of uh you know that Viserys is is just seemingly kind of oblivious to what's really going on with the Dothraki in the television show, but here it's like just in your face. Yeah, I and mean, definitely with the language he doesn't understand, and he's he's not picking up on that at all. But he, I don't know, I just feel like it, to be that unaware of, maybe he just doesn't think that any of their opinions matter, so it doesn't matter if they're laughing at him or mocking him, and he's unaware. But um, how, in contrast to Danny's assimilation, what do you make of that? Do you think she's just like, I don't understand how they could be so different. Do you have any idea on um, how she's so easily able to adapt and he's so resistant to it? I, I kind of think that speaks, first of all, that, to Daenerys' childhood. I think Daenerys, uh, more so than Viserys, has always had to adapt. She's had to adapt to the every whim of her brother. Um, so as far as being thrown into a new culture, it's probably more instinctual for her to become uh, a part of the culture that she's in rather than Viserys who tries to distinguish himself because of, like you said, his arrogance from the culture that he's in. Oh, it's so funny because my thought was like they had to, when you first said that, it was like he, they had the exact same upbringing. Like they had pretty much the same life experiences up to this point, like both exiled from Westeros, both, you know, penniless and quote-unquote hunted. So... But I guess like the only difference was that Danny had Viserys as an older brother. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I, I really think that that's part of it. Um, I, I think the fact that uh, it's clear from the Daenerys chapters that, uh, and even from the television show, that Viserys has or Viserys has never treated Daenerys uh, worth a crap, right? Yeah. And, and um, this is kind of an exciting thing for her because she is the big deal. Call has. Khal Drogo has made her a big deal. And uh, so I would think that she would be much more enthusiastic about adapting. And it's not that Viserys... I, I, I honestly believe that Viserys probably could adapt if he had any inclination to, but he just feels that they're below him. They're savages to him. And so he, he wants nothing to do with it. Whereas Daenerys is, has been, for the first time possibly in her whole life, she's been made a big deal of by a large group of people and and she's um you know willing to put in the time to you know i guess uh be gracious about that yeah and to maybe um using this new empowerment a little bit too like i even kind of said she used all of the tricks she was taught to get uh drogo to do something for her for viserys right like she right (laughs) <laughs> she's using like all of these new skills that she's learning to her advantage and well and even in that case it's adorably Danny because she's using it to help the Yeah. Yeah. But but here is something that I found very interesting and, and I think this is a turn for Danny as to where she sees her place. Um because the, she has this thought, she says, when her son sat the Iron Throne, she would make certain that he would have his own blood riders uh, to protect her son from the king's guard, but what I'm wondering is why would she even think that her son would be sitting the Iron Throne 
at all. If Viserys has heirs, it would be because since he's obviously not dead yet. But it's making, and she also alludes to something about um, that she thinks her baby is the true dragon at the end of the chapter. On top of that, she questions Jorah about whether Viserys will be strong enough to take Westeros. And, and I think that maybe she feels like that she is starting to get the idea that she should be the person as opposed to just doing this um, to help her brother. I totally made a note of that quote that she asked Jorah, uh, what if it weren't Viserys, if it were someone else who led them, someone stronger? I was actually going to ask you who you thought that was, if that was herself, Drogo, or her baby. And that makes a lot of sense, because we don't get a lot of internal dialogue from Danny, which is like kind of a contrast to the Tyrion chapter later, which is like a whole inter- inner monologue. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to, to figure out what she was referring to, some of the things that she was, like when she was talking to the baby about, um, yeah, like you said, like you're the true dragon. Um, it does kind of imply that she does think that she, and this is even before any of the, the prophecies she gets about the stallion, the mouth of the world or anything like that. So right. it's very interesting that she's even starting to have some of this empowerment um, projected onto her baby. And I think that's nice. I also think it's a little sad that she doesn't think of herself as the true dragon. Like, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't even consider herself. She just talks about it being her baby. Or maybe I'm, I'm thinking she was talking about Drogo when she was asking Jora. Ah, someone okay. stronger took it. Because otherwise she'd have to wait for um, her baby to age at least like 15 years. Right. So, yeah. Although, you know, look at the rate that she's going at, even in the television show. It might, it might have been 15 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is true. <laughs> Which brings me to another question, and this is something I need to ask you, because as you know, I didn't finish season five. Um, did they get to a point where Danny met up with the next Dothraki yeah. Kalasar? Yeah. They did. Okay. In that case, then I found this to be very interesting as well. The prophecy um, that the old crones uh, of the Vase Dothraks says that at the, there's a going to be a point where all Kalasars return to Vase Dothrak at once. That's why they have to be able to house. They have so many empty houses and they're able to house everybody. Um, given um, that Danny has encountered another Kalasar, I'm assuming after escaping Marine. Is it possible that she will be the reason that all of the Dothraki come home and she leads them? There's a lot of theories on that, and I think that there's a lot of good cases like made for it. It just I feel like there's a couple of like roadblocks that I don't understand how that get from point A to point C. Like I feel there's got to be some point B in the middle that explains it. <laughs> but I think that that's kind of laid out, like foreshadowed here with this it just seems like a big blank page for George to fill in with this new scene and something new, this new event where Danny has gone through all this stuff in Esso in, in um, Marine being hated constantly. And it's so hard for her there to go somewhere where she started being you know, loved by the Dothraki or at least respected and um, to maybe come back with the, with some power because she's got a dragon now, maybe that has something that's the point B in there. <laughs> like, I mean, this is one big Kalasar, um, that she, that comes, uh, comes up to her and it's, it's, and it's more descriptive in the book and the show. It's just a bunch of horses start circling her. Right. So it's hard to say that, 
to give much more than that since we get a lot more in the book and some background on who this Kalasar is because in the show you just see his horses. Right. So maybe, and I have a little bit of um, stuff that was in House of the Undying that wasn't in the show, so I kind of want to talk about it in spoilers. Okay, sounds fair enough. Um, but yeah, that was something that just kind of stuck out to me. It's like, hmm, you know, I don't know that I even gave that much thought the first time I ever read it, but having, um, and now evidently since the show has uh, introduced her to uh, another uh, Cal- Kalasar, then perhaps there will be a, a possibility that uh, everyone will, all of the Dothraki will reunite in uh, Vase Dothrak under her at some point. And I wonder, I mean, I can even speculate to the point that that might mean she might not even ever come to Westeros. She may just rule Essos. I want that. That is my, that has been my ongoing theory, that Danny stays in Essos and, and she's embraced it so much and that's been her whole life there and I want I do want her to, to stay in Essos. <laughs> she'll just rule from the uh, as as uh, Bubba that's at Fit and Trim on Twitter says she'll rule from the house with the red door. Aw, I like that. If she ever finds it. But yeah, the um you know, that's where the Targaryens came from. I think there's a lot to that goes into making that a really satisfying conclusion for her character arc. Um and she's she is really good at embracing this culture and different cultures. And there's so many different, like Westeros has a lot of different like subcultures in there in Westeros, but it's all, you know, different flavors of the same product. Whereas in, you know, Essos you have different flavors and textures and consistencies and everything's so different over there. And I feel like she embraces all of them. And that's, that just fits her character more in, in my mind at least. So, I'm so excited when you say that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, I think Ion Tron in the chat disagrees with us. He says uh, the Dosh Kaleen are just building FEMA camps. Well, it's, it's becoming winter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll be necessary. Yeah, just, we don't know how Essos handles winter. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Is there a north to Essos? It's kind of weird. You would think... Um, if they're separated by a sea, does that mean there's even White Walkers over there? That's really hard to say. There's been a lot of theories that, that um, north of the, um, I guess it's the Shivering Sea up there. I can never remember if it's on the east or west. But up north of the Narrow Sea, the north end of the Narrow Sea, between um, north of the Wall and Essos, there's theories that it connects and that when ah. the winter comes, it freezes over and so like the polar caps expand down south more and they can cross ice, ice bridges that there has been, um, like the Azor High actually all comes from uh, Essos and stuff. So there's more thoughts on it being a worldwide event than just a Westeros event. Excellent. All right. <laughs> uh, what else have you got on this chapter, Kel? Yeah. I, I like that you mentioned the, the Blood Riders comparing them to the uh, Knights of the King's Guard. That kind of uh, was the note I made, too, that the... Like the stark contrast between at least the Knights of the King's Guard that we have now versus Blood Riders and how they're like just by not even like oath or anything. It's just a because I think that's such a Westerosy thing is to take an oath, but just it's their culture to to follow their cows into death so they they ride with them in the Nightlands. Such so a commitment. It's way stronger sounding and at least way more intense than the Knights of the King's Guard. I like the idea that Danny said she wanted that for her, for her son. Um, and then, so when she was talking with Jorah about the, the idea of the Dothraki being able to even conquer Westeros, um, 
was, I read the um, uh, Stephen Atwell's blog, The Race for the Iron Throne, and I want to mention it here because he does a really good job in every chapter explaining like historical context and stuff. But especially in this one, he talked about how it, the fighting tactics of the Dothraki could absolutely win against the Westerosi Knights as long as it was in the field, um, which is just what Jorah says. And it's the castles and the walled cities that would um, hold against because they don't have siege tactics. And that's kind of, a, I mean, as much hope as we have for stuff like Danny bringing her Dothraki army and even now her unsullied army, like how much could they actually hope to do against castles and um, walled cities? It's not necessarily their uh, their experiences and what their specialties in. So kind of made a little bit of a damper on the the whole idea. And, uh, you know, made me a little bit more hopeful about the prospects of Danny. Well, and it's interesting because it seems that some cities, uh, especially in um, Essos, let's say east of Karth and north of Karth, have done that. You look at a city like Marine, which has great walls. You look at, uh, uh, was the one, Astapor, which evidently had great walls as well, mm-hmm. uh, at least by book description. I don't remember the exact way it looked in the television show, but I'll just pretend like it has great walls as well. Karth, right? Did you say Karth? Uh, Karth had great walls. We did see that. So, um, yeah. yeah. They learned. And the only reason they're still standing is because they have those probably. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. Good points. Uh, what else we got? Anything? Uh, this is the first time Danny calls Drogo her sun and stars. And Aww. Oh, it's so cheesy. It holds a really warm place in my heart because I wear a bracelet that says Root of My Life. My boyfriend wears a bracelet that says My Sun and Stars. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I know. Everyone can vomit rainbows. <laughs> It's really, really special to me. I really like that. Um, nerd, nerd, hardcore nerd. Excellent. Um, so there is a misconception, and the, I, I did make big long notes about it, is that um, the Targaryens are not immune to fire, and this is another instance where we see that Danny is really tolerant to high heat and actually prefers, like, scalding baths. It's just a Targaryen trait. That a couple um, other characters we haven't met uh, have that. Dunkin' Egg stuff, so don't worry. <laughs> but I know people keep saying that. I keep saying that the Targaryens are, or that Danny's fireproof. Well, I, I don't know that the show has disproven it because there hasn't been any other Targaryens besides the series. Yeah. And and he, really, he he didn't die from fire. He died from suff- suffocation because of the gold, right? Yeah, massive brain trauma. Yeah. But I don't know. I just want to. I mean, anytime I get a chance, I'll point that out. Right. Sure. Because George has specifically said too that the, that was the fire, the pyre survival was a one-time miracle type event. But well, and uh, and and <laughs> Drogon breathing on her—that was on the show. That wasn't in the book. It didn't happen that way. He, they just they breathed on um, what's the his name? Well, I thought that I thought that uh, in the book it said that her her uh, clothes had. Oh, you mean at the, in the at the end? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of in the House of the Because um, in the House of the Undying, like they kind of made it look like the um, dragons were breathing fire through her, and it was hitting the um, warlock. Oh, what was the warlock's name? Hyatt Priest. Yeah, nailed it. Well, it was the uh, 
Um, but at the end, yeah, in the in the arena, yeah, the, um, fighting pit, the um, she was uh, nursing wounds when she got to the. Um, oh, was she? Yeah, not in the show though, but in the book, she she. So, no. Okay. All right. So, okay. <laughs> but at, at any rate, yes, George has come out and said that um, Targaryens are not immune to fire. It says for sure. Yeah, um, but, just, but it is a distinctly Danny quality that she likes scalding baths. However, fun fact, I looked this up, and it is highly recommended to, uh, while pregnant, avoid taking baths that raise your body temperature over 102 degrees because it will cause a drop in blood pressure, depriving the baby of oxygen and nutrients, and making miscarriages more likely also birth defects. Ah, <laughs> uh, dun-dun-dun. So really, it was just hot water. It was it, hot bath. It was hot water that killed uh, little baby Drogo. Drogo. Uh, Danny, you fool. Uh, Rago, right? Rago, yeah. Rago, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, good. <laughs> what else we got? Anything? Um... I don't know why I wrote all my notes in like block of text. Isn't that nice? That's myself. <laughs> well, the, I, the, I think the last thing I think is kind of interesting is that Danny does draw blood on Viserys and doesn't seem to have much of a consequence. It's kind of an interesting, like choice of George to specifically point out that drawing blood. Um, Jorah tells Danny. Um, It is forbidden to carry a blade in Bazdoth Rack or to shed a free man's blood. And then by the end of the chapter, she hits him in the face with a belt and, you know. Um, well, and he did the same to her. He grabbed her hand so much that her hand bled too, right? I don't think so. I think it just hurt. Oh, okay. Um, she did hold um, sand silk cloth at the end that did have his blood on it, but it says it was his blood. Okay. Oh, yeah. It, but she totally made him bleed. I don't know, like, it's just a weird immediate violation of their culture. Well, well, one thing, one thing's for sure. Viserys certainly isn't going to tell anybody about it. No. And He's going to, he'll just, <laughs> Jorah's like, uh, you're, you're, the uh, king, what happened? You know, and he's going to say, I fell. Yeah, or. Oh, did, and, oh, and by the way, give me that dinner that Danny just sent over to you. Ah. Uh. I know. He was such, I, I really didn't feel bad for him. I mean, she gave him every chance and really tried to reach out and help him, but there was just this reluctance in him to assimilate. And oh, All right, but let's get to the point of this. Yeah. Does the dragon get woken if Doria doesn't order him to come? He finds something. Like, I mean... It, it's all Doria's he, fault. It's always Doria's fault. <laughs> Ugh, that stupid light scene. <laughs> I do, I do get kind of annoyed, you know. She, Danny didn't tell her to tell him to go ask him, and I guess it's just the Khaleesi way, and she just assumed that she's always maybe trying to groom Danny to be more Dothraki, and so she uh-huh. adjusted it, but to her own lament, I suppose. Yeah, that was not very nice of Doria. <laughs> no, not very nice. Of, let's, let's make it very specific here, though. It was not nice of the series. To he really chose poorly. It. Yeah. Chose well, he 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 chose asininely, or rather, as an ass. <laughs> How to react? I know. 
do you feel bad for him at all? Do I feel bad for Viserys at all? I have never, in the course of the television show or reading these books, ever felt bad for Viserys. How about you? No, it's, he's one of the harder characters, I find. I have to, like, the harder they are, the more, like, like with Cersei, like, I really try to um, challenge myself to, to find some sympathetic aspects of them, but he, the most I can come up with for him is just that kind of, like, pity you feel for somebody when you know something that, like, they're just going to be their own downfall. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the extent of it that I can come up with. Like, he had it coming, but poor guy. <laughs> yeah, most people say the same thing about me. I'm going to be the source of my own downfall. So. Oh, yeah. No, I believe that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Are you ready for Brand? Yep. All right. Brand five. Brand gets to go riding outside of Winterfell for the first time with his brand new saddle. He gets news about King's Landing from his brother, and then he gets held hostage by some wildlings and deserters before he is saved by Theon. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, here's a line that, that I found interesting. Uh, where uh, one one of the deserters, I guess it is, says, think the White Walkers will care if you have a hostage? And then I started thinking, well, aren't the babies that Craster brings and, and all of these other people, all these sacrifices that these people are making to the White Walkers, aren't they kind of hostages? <laughs> They're not able to do anything about it. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, he hit the nail on the head and they would have cared. Ah, oh, you fool. <laughs> it's possible, especially as Stark, like the way that the you saw the wildlings treated John when they found out he was the, the son of Eddard Stark. Like that kind of uh, is truly uh, indicative that this would have been, if it, you know, if they wanted to, maybe it would have come with something. But I think he said it offhanded. <laughs> uh, another question I have for you, Kelly: These wall deserters themselves, uh, they say that they have these black coats but they're, they're faded. So my question to you is, have they been deserted for a long time and just not gotten any new clothes? They certainly just don't seem to have any problem stealing other things. Or uh, is it just that uh, standard issue at the wall is, is going to be faded gray instead of actual black in the first place? A couple of possibilities. Like, so if they are deserters, I think since they know about man probably likely that they've deserted and have taken spear wives and they've become wildlings a while ago. And the reason they're south of the wall now is because of they are brothers and they know how to get through the wall or they were brothers and they knew how to get through the wall or over the wall where they weren't looking, something like that. Right. Right. Okay. Or they are just full wildlings and they killed some rangers and took their clothes. <laughs> Very good. All right. Fair. Probably and, one of those two. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, and Osha, of course, mentions Mance Raider. Uh, as you said, there's a mention of, of Mance and this whole thing about hostages. Uh, our first look at Osha in the book. Um, I don't quite know what, you know, I, I, we can tell you folks for sure that uh, there's a little bit of difference in, in Osha in between the book and the television show. Um, she's definitely not uh, Natalia Tenna. <laughs> she's supposed to be taller and much older, right? I think so. Uh, it's hard to tell because Brand's kind of used to, you know, farm folk, or at least at the worst, I would guess farm folk. Uh, the best, you know, he's used to lords and ladies, and they probably don't age as harshly as wildlings, but it does seem like she's 
a little harsher, like a little bit, uh, yeah, around the edges, a little, little older, or at least a little harder, I think is the word I'm looking for. Okay, fair enough. Had a harder life. <laughs> uh, what have you got for us? Uh, I like to look for, in between chapters, like somehow why George put these in order in this way, um, especially on like a third reread, stuff like that. And uh, in this one, it was the um, the winter town. really kind of reminded me of Fast Off Rack, how it's large enough to house a bunch of people when they're needed, but otherwise it's pretty vacant and almost ghostly in its, um, like kind of like a ghost town, I guess. So I kind of liked the that connection between the, the two chapters. Um, I guess we, we ever never really see it like filled up too much um, besides the, or like a little bit. Other than that, it's never really like winter, winter. So maybe in the next book, we'll, we'll see what it's like when it's actually yeah. occupied. Well, well, is there anything left there after what uh, oh, Ramsey did? I yeah. mean, it looked... It, it seems to me that um, they're rebuilding Winterfell on the TV show, right? <laughs> With their two by fours, yeah. uh, that was so funny. <laughs> they had, like perfectly cut wood. It was really amusing to me. <laughs> it just, it, Is that one of those things that you spent way too much time on, Kelly? Probably. It was yeah. just one of those things that just looked like a Hollywood set was being built. <laughs> like they had all these exact measurement boards and stuff. It was pretty. Um, for as high quality as the show is, that was pretty juicy to me. Um, it looked like a set that hadn't been finished yet, <laughs> which could be how it looks. It's just that's how it looked in in the um, couple of things I buy back up from it. But um, maybe the you know maybe the Boltons have uh, redone it a little bit, and I don't know why they would though, because anyone who came to be there would be really you know if they had come there before, they would probably be super loyal to the Starks. So I would think that they wouldn't necessarily be too inviting. But, Unless they invited like their own household there or something, possible. Um, but yeah, I just kind of like the idea of the winter town and you know these young lordlings riding through and Bran getting to ride. I mean, he's apparently been riding for a while now and on the court. Yeah. In Tyrion's saddle, totally. Um, I don't know. If someone did that, something that like life changing for me, I would have a really hard time ever thinking anything badly about them. So I wonder if that'll Stick with, you know, stick with um, brand for, uh, it doesn't seem like it does too much, but it, it, I don't know, it seems really significant that he's able to, it gives, I mean, he basically says, like, he can ride, and he, like, screams it, and he says it feels almost as good as flying. Right. <laughs> to give someone that gift seems really, really significant and would stick with them. Right. And, and, it, and I think, you know, um, between the Tyrion chapters and and little things like this that you're reminded that that Tyrion like did for Bran, um, it starts to paint Tyrion in a in a slight little bit better picture. Now we've had this discussion before, so I won't go into it too much because we're going to talk more in the Tyrion chapter anyway. But it, you know, he's never been total white hat in the books, um, but you can you can see how. Uh, with the argument about you know betting against his family, never betting against his family and everything, just how wrong everybody else uh, that thinks that Tyrion had anything to do with any of this is. Yeah, it, he's in a hard spot because he is loyal in some ways to his family. So it's kind of like to be this 
the good guy that we kind of know he is, like, you love your brothers and your sisters and your family. Like, right. you're supposed to do these things for them. But if your family is all these horrible people, doing good things for them is doing evil things in the eyes of everyone else. So um, I think he does what he can. I think everyone kind of gets that from um, from the book. Uh, I think he's a little bit more of that both sides. Um he sympathizes with his family a lot more in the book, I think, yes. because of the show. Yeah. So that makes him a little bit more um, multi-layered than the, the hero that we've seen in the show. Right. But, yeah, I think we definitely get to see more of his, I think at least it seems like we're either supposed to or George has decided that Tyrion is more of a hero than um, kind of the stark coloring has, has made him appear so far in the book. And right. at this point, in this chapter and then in the next one, is a right. lot. Right. So someone who I and I found this interesting on this reread because I don't know if I recalled uh, it meaning anything to me when I read the first book or when I read the book the first time was uh, that Bran more or less doesn't really care for Theon all that much. Oh yeah. He doesn't. He. I'm not saying that he's saying like you know Theon is an evil person or anything, but I think that that's. That's something that kind of points towards, you know, when Theon takes Winterfell, you know, how Bran is um, not very happy about that. You know, I mean, all, and I won't say that Bran expected it, but it, it just, Bran doesn't seem all that surprised when yeah. Theon puts it to him. You know, He's not shocked and hurt and betrayed when it happens. He's, yeah, he definitely takes it in stride. And I think if it had been like um, Rob, you know, if he had, you know... <laughs> lived to see the, the treachery, he would have definitely, um, like, to his face, it would have been harder and, like, much more of a, you did this to me, we were like brothers. Right. Um, yeah, I think there's something to Bran where he, he does kind of, he's the one who we see with um, Lewin the most, and he seems to, at least, you know, since he's kind of like the only one we have a viewpoint of around Lewin these days, I guess that makes sense, but he does really... Um, think about his father a lot. He thinks about Ned and he thinks about um, Lewin the most. And I think you can kind of see that in how he looks at Theon. And I think he reflects their cautious openness to Theon. Because it, it just says that he never warmed to his father's ward. Uh, it doesn't necessarily say he doesn't like him, but it just kind of shows that, like, reluctance, not reluctance, but just that, I don't know, he's a little bit cool. He's got that stark coolness. Gotcha. Right on. Fair enough. Fair enough. What else have you got? Uh, well, we found out that Catelyn did send um, the orders, from, or at least the, the bird from the Eyrie. And so uh, Rob has been um, sending out messages and, and calling the banners and stuff. So to uh, just to give a little pat on the back to Catelyn that she, you know, we never really knew if she did get up until this point. We didn't know if she followed out Ned's instructions to, um, was it, put archers at the uh, Moat Caitlin and stuff like that. So he did that she did and so that's being um, taken care of and it was just a quick line and I don't think it was very obvious I kind of wanted right. to that. covered that and there's this kind of progression through the chapter and I don't know if it's the change when um, Rob tells Bran about Ned but Bran kind of starts with this kind of he has these like young kind of abstract dreams of war and like being an heir and the things that kind of seem exciting and when they are faced in with reality and he kind of switches and it becomes a little bit darker and a little bit less exciting because when he's talking to Rob, he says, you know, I'm eight now. He doesn't seem so much younger than 15 and I'm heir to Winterfell after you. That kind of a thing is really easy to 
point out, but, you know, Rob's response is kind of sad and even a little scared. And then you can kind of tell why, because it's a reality of, like, somebody being an heir after you means that you're, you might die. <laughs> and um, later in the chapter, it says, not so long ago, the thought of Rob calling the banners and riding off to war would have filled him with excitement, but now he felt only dread. I think the reality is starting to sink in a little bit on his little, I mean, he's not much younger than 15, but he's only eight. <laughs> right. And and these are the thoughts of, of, of uh, an eight-year-old boy, but it's still, it's, ni- it's a nice subtle foreshadowing for, for Rob's fate. Yeah. Oh, and then also Rob's transition too. We kind of talked about it in Grand's last chapter, how he seems kind of indecisive and not super sure of him, his own judgment. And we see it again here because he doesn't really know what to do with Osha at the end. And he's kind of grateful that um, Lewin says, take her back to the castle and question her. And he's like, yes, <laughs> I didn't want to have to kill a woman. <laughs> Let's do that. And it's kind of a way for him to save face without um, doing anything. I don't know that he's kind of, probably has never had to do before. You know, if she was a, a wildling or she was threatening his brother even, like she, he had to do what his father would do, which would be to sentence her to death. And not ready for that, apparently. Yeah. But he's, he's getting there. Like he, He's listening to um, Lewin. He told Bran, he's like, I listen to everyone. And I think that's a really good sign of wisdom. listening to advisors and stuff. Yeah, well, that's that, that's certainly a sign of, of willingness to uh, learn, uh, or you know, um, it still comes down to whether you make the right decision based on the information you're given or not. So. Yeah, and your strength of character to stand behind your own decision, and all of those things come with experience that he doesn't have. So right. unfortunately, he has to rely on you know the people's experience. Right. Yeah. Very much so. Anything else? There's a little bit of um. There's a a line where um, Bran is being held by the uh, dick, I think. He's being held by the guy with the knife. And he says, the stench of the man filled his nose. Um, he smelled of fear. And it just kind of reminded me of kind of the verbiage we get when he is warging and uh, sign that he's already doing it. Or... Well, and that's interesting to me, too, because uh, Summer was attacking uh, the shorter woman, right? Yeah. Huh. And then all of a sudden, well, <laughs> but before that, uh, he just started on her leg, and she started to reach up to stab him, and he instantly got out of the way. And so I was wondering if the communication was going both ways between Bran and Summer at that point. Possibly, because, yeah, it said specifically um, if it was as if he knew the blade was coming. Right. Yeah, which is kind of even more um, overt than mine, my example. Yeah. No, I think coupled together, though, I think that that's very good. I, I, I think that uh, you need both of those elements to say that maybe this is the process that that we're being hinted at here, even though if it's not, like, directly being said. It was so cool in the television show um, when they had Bran warging for the first time, you know, just seeing everything through the dog's eyes. That was awesome. Something you can definitely, they definitely utilized the medium for that. That was perfect. Yeah. Uh, I only have one other thing, and it, um, it was the the fact <laughs> how brutal the direwolves were, it was, and yeah, how gruesome. And, I mean, they were making these like guardsmen go vomit in the bushes, like they could not handle it. And these are like grown men who've probably been in battle, or at least you know fighting, and have seen injuries and stuff. So this was it was pretty indicative of of how um, shocking 
these dire wolves are and how powerful they can actually be utilized for fear tactics. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I, I did like him taking the time, George taking the time to, to note what the difference between like what a regular wolf is and, and a dire wolf is in the terms of the difference of their appearance. Yes. <laughs> that was slick. How he, he, he just like, the kettle master described it to Bran. And this is what he said. <laughs> right. Totally. Exactly. Uh, okay, well, if there's nothing else, uh, there's one other thing that Ion Trone put in here, which will lead us to the next Tyrion chapter. He says, Tyrion has good relationships with Jon, Sansa, and Bran. So Tyrion's actually on pretty good terms with most of the living Starks, right? Yeah, actually, that's a good point. And he is kind of married to one of them. I mean, that kind of... Yeah, yeah. He's getting along with his in-laws, his future in-laws. Let's see. uh, Tyrion 5, then. Let's see. Tyrion spends some time in the sky cells at the Eyrie, then convinces Lady Lysa to grant him a trial by combat. She chooses her champion, and then Bronn, volunteers as Tyrion's champion. Uh, one thing that I found really funny er, and odd, uh, it, it, it almost seems kind of self-defeating, is how Tyrion in this chapter really criticizes Cersei for having too much pride. And that's like right after he's just basically admitting the same for himself because of the way he shot his mouth off to Lysa and, and Robert. <laughs> you know? Oh, totally. Uh, you know, um, he, he uses the same word to just, like, I don't, I get it so mixed up because I feel like George uses this phrase, um, a certain low cunning. He uses that a bunch. Um, and I feel like it's been used to describe Tyrion by Tywin, um, at least a time or two. So I feel like he does kind of project his own fault, maybe, on his siblings, like the ones that he doesn't like seeing in himself. He kind of bashes his siblings for. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or at least Thursday. He sees the worst in him in her. And I think we can we can all relate a little bit to that. And you don't like people who are too much like you because you see your own flaws in them. <laughs> ah, good point. Excellent point. What have you got? Uh don't want to go on too long because I know I just tend to ramble, but I really like how the the eerie was so distinct in Westeros. And I know I mentioned before that it's all just kind of different flavors of the same thing, but it, in this way, it's, it's a very distinct one. And I liked the, the differences, the, the sky cells or something I've never experienced in any other fantasy genre before. And I like that um, this concept of this like horrific environment and this like mind torture that they, uh, they utilize just by their surroundings and how clever that was to come up with. And then the moon door, gotta say better in the show than the book but still really cool and they had a bunch of weirwood um decoration like the door and the the throne was kind of weirwood so i think there's some indication of their uh first men ancestry that we don't get too much else about them in but because we mostly associate them with the tullies and their um less of the northern um culture because of life but i think that the the errands we don't have too much history on, but they're they're at the uh, some of the first men. So that's kind of a cool yeah. Keeping them a little bit tighter with the with the Starks, I think. We like the Starks, so 
<laughs> I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> well, what did you get? Some of us like the Starks. Aw, everybody likes the Starks. What are you talking about? Okay, all right. <laughs> I, won't, I won't take that. You need, you need your heart checked if you don't like the Starks. I, I also like Tyrion. As you said, a lot of this chapter is Tyrion's kind of internal monologue more than anything else. And um, it's very interesting. And again, this is something that we'd have to discuss at further length in in the spoiler section. But even here, um, George kind of lays down a little hint through Tyrion's thoughts that John Aaron's murder and the attempt on Bran are not connected at all. And, and I remember when I watched the television show um, for a good portion of the time, I thought that they were connected. Um, and uh, clearly here with Tyrion being in, in, with you being in his head, I mean, he, he calls John Aaron's murder deft and subtly done. Whereas the attempt on Bran seems unbelievably clumsy, you know, and that, that points to, um, a well-planned thing as opposed to a not-so-well-planned thing. And I, I think for that reason, the payoff about the dagger um, is somewhat satisfactory uh, as far as uh, the books go. I actually have to agree with that. I didn't think of it that way before. I definitely, um, now that you say that, it, it does add a little bit more satisfaction knowing that so far previous, like this far back, it was kind of pointed out that there was dissonance between the two MOs and, you know, I just love that Tyrion was able to figure that out within what a day of being told of the, the suspicion. And Ned's been in King's Landing for what, like months, like specifically investigating this. And he hasn't reached that conclusion about the difference between how these were handled. Well, and, and neither has Catelyn really for that matter. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and you said you like the Starks? I know. <laughs> I'm softy. I don't know. Yeah, they, they, it's, not, it's not Ned's fault. He, um, he was led to believe this. He was misled, poor soul. That's <laughs> the best I can do. I know. Uh, and also he's come to the conclusion that he's being manipulated. And really when you look at it, he, 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 you know, we know from the show that it was Littlefinger and Lysa's plan to, to kill John Aaron. We also know from the show that it was Littlefinger that suggested that the dagger was Tyrion's, which um, hasn't been proven or disproven yet in the books or in the show, I guess. But, uh, well, it has been disproven later on in the books. I think I just spoiled something. I'll have to sh- cut that out. Um, yeah, edit. Uh, but uh, but it, it's just interesting that... Um, Right here, uh, if you've seen the television show, then autom- automatically you're thinking about Littlefinger, right? Oh yeah, and it's when, even from like last week or two weeks ago. I don't know. We were reading the Varys Illyrio chapter, and he specifically said this is no longer a game for two players. I mean, how close is that to what uh, Tyrion thinks, which is a little bit more flowery? But he says perhaps the direwolf and the lion were not the only beasts in the woods. <laughs> Correct. But it's like the same thing. Like, he is so close to hitting the nail on the head that it's, I feel foolish for having ever caught that, and I've read this twice, guys. So it's pretty, pretty, um, it's pretty clever, and it's in a really exciting chapter, so I give myself past, past self an excuse for not catching it until now, but um, 
is so close. And imagine if, like, if Tyrion was had a, an opportunity or a time, like he didn't get right back to King's Land, he didn't have to clean everything up, but he got, you know, if he was the one who was in King's Landing doing the investigating now, like how quick would everything be solved? <laughs> he's so smart. And, I don't know, I think maybe he's too smart. That's why he's got to be in a cell. <laughs> <laughs> cells were creepy cells were creepy what else you got uh, fun fact uh, for this chapter is that Mord is Latin for death uh, so in German and Norwegian it technically means homicide or murder French or Italian it's a little bit further meaning like bite or catch or something like that so, kind, of, kind of a neat little plug that uh, George snuck in there so mm. teasing like the I kind of saw a little description of it. It was like, it's like death is teasing Tyrion constantly. <laughs> well, I've got one uh, in regards to your wall height stuff. Here, he's 100 feet closer to his hard surface uh, by peering over the sky cell or out the sky cell, which is 600 feet to the next fall of sky. <laughs> to but, the wake, is it the Way Castle sky? Yeah. Uh, yeah, wherever the roof of sky, he just said it would be a 600-foot fall of the sky. Did he have trouble looking over the wall at when he was there? In the sky cell? No. Did he have trouble looking over the wall when he no. was at the wall? No, but I think it's... Doesn't it have a, a ledge, like a... Well, like they probably a veil, have, but you, like, you know... Yeah, some kind of guard. Some kind of guard. Uh, yeah, it's a little slippy up there. I would assume they've got that. <laughs> they've had one too many accidents. They built a wall, a little they put, wall. On the, they put on the gravel wall. down there. You know that should be enough. Snow had to do that. He had to go up there and put gravel on the on the pathways. Oh, yeah, but what if it's your job to do that and you've got to walk on the not gravel? I don't know. I'm just saying, it's dangerous. I'm just wondering why Tyrion was more scared of it. I guess because of the it was uh, the incline was. Yeah. It was designed for, like, psychological torment. So, I mean, it was working. Part of me wondered if anybody actually wrote, if, like, an actual criminal wrote that, um, God's help me, the blue is calling, I think. Yeah. Or was that, like, part of the the haunted house, you know? Ah, somebody just put it there in order to get people to get people more scared, yeah? Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's a good question. Could, could be uh, a bunch of cloak and dagger stuff right there. Mord. Mord's always thinking. Oh, no, couldn't be Mord. Mord's illiterate. Uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, or is he? Ah, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> More theory casts coming your way, folks. What else have you got, Kelly? <laughs> um, yeah, all of that inner monologue in the middle was just such a stark contrast from the Danny chapter. It was really, I really liked that, and I didn't realize how much I missed that from the Danny chapters until I, I got all of this, like, thought dump from... Tyrion, and he's he's really really clever, and he uses um, his wits like he talks about all the time. So it's nice to see that he doesn't just you know brag about it. He actually acts on it, and, and it works for him. And he's a really good um, judge of character and reading people. And I think they specifically say that in the show at one point um, that with the game that he plays with Shay, mm-hmm. in like season one. Um, but he knows how to play people, and he knows how to react, and he knows that. So he's claiming his readiness to confess because that's going to make Lysa bring witnesses to her victory because she's this really arrogant person. And so in front of these witnesses, he's going to question the Aaron honor, which they 
kind of is part of their creed, their motto, um, by saying that they're not, you know, offering him proper justice. And he demands a trial, and the king should, you know, King Robert should be his, um, his judge. Uh, Lysa counters and says, well, no, we, that won't do, so Robert, little Robin will be your judge. But he's ready for that. Like, he has contingency plans. And he's like, I will demand a trial by combat then. And I'll send for Jamie. And they said, no, you have to have it now. <laughs> so he has a contingency plan for that. And it's this relationship that he's built up with Braun. And he kind of puts all of his hopes on it. And sure enough, it works out for him. And Braun steps up. And all that, you know, I wonder, like, how much could he have possibly planned for this beforehand? And how much of this was just him being smart and with a little bit of foresight, knowing that he's going to want some of these bellsores on his side and how he knows that he can win them over and this is the fruits of that labor paying off. don't know. Yeah, all of that whispering going on between the two of them that Catelyn was not happy about. Yeah, and how much of that, like, confession that he gave was really just to be kind of win over Braun or anyone else there who might have, I don't know, been charmed by his kind of Sense of humor, yeah. 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 He just thought it all out. Very clever, very clever little guy. Although I would have loved it, though. I mean, just for the sake of 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 pure fantasy, for for you know him to say, "I demand trial by combat," and Lysa says, "Somebody, give me a weapon." Oh my god! (laughs) And and the two of them go at it. He would have lost. He would have lost. Lysa's that crazy. Yeah, maybe. She oh she probably would have just thro- you know, gotten him to the door and tried to push him out. Seems to be her move. That's her finishing move. <laughs> she's really she's good at it. She must practice. <laughs> um and then no one of the last things I have on this is just carrying over from the previous chapters with Danny and Viserys is how this these two children with uh, two people who've grown up with the same childhood had grown to be such different people. And again, with Lysa and Catelyn being these siblings that grew up together, but how they're so different now. And, you know, Lysa's so caught up in her narrative of, you know, like she even believed that Tyrion was ready to confess. She, of all people, knows that he didn't do it. Like when you're first reading this, you don't um, have any reason to suspicion, you have suspicion on her. Yeah, so it's like, her arrogance kind of seems, all right, well, she really believes he did it, and she thinks that her sky cells always work, so that makes sense, all right. But no, she specifically knows that he didn't do it, but she's ready to hear him confess? Like, that seems so crazy on a reread. And, you know, you can even see Kat, who has no idea that any of this, you know, conspiracy is going on. She's the one who's cautious and observant. Right. Right. Yeah, and and it's amazing because you think about it from Liza's perspective, I mean, she's hoping upon hope that those sky cells have worked and he's going to admit it because that exonerates her completely. Oh, yeah, and she's thinking this is all working out great for her. Yeah, yeah. She's like thinking, oh, if this guy takes a fall for this, then I am free and clear. Yeah, or she's just that delusional that she doesn't think that she could ever be caught for. Oh, delusional is so boring. That's so Lysa. Let's let's make her smart. Yeah, Yeah. try. (laughs) It's hard to. Yeah, like I just get the, because I mean, in between the two of them, I feel like little fingers the brain. Like little fingers the one who seems capable. She seems. Uh, she, she was a pawn the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Right, right down to her little tumble. 
And mm-hmm. the rest of it, I, there was a lot of people in the um, who came to witness the confession, and some of them are never mentioned again. Like he mentions that just some of the uh, the heraldry, and this is the only time that's ever mentioned, so that it's kind of odd. But then there are some that um, do come up later, and I kind of want to talk about that in spoilers. Okay, fair enough. Uh, with that, let's move on to the final chapter, Eddard 10. Eddard awakens from a dream filled with memories of a place called the Tower of Joy after a long milk of the poppy nap when he is told that he must see the king. Robert and Cersei come to confront Ned about the taking of Tyrion and the attack by Jaime Lannister. Uh, I have just one note myself, so I'll just go ahead and get this uh, out of the way, Kelly, and then the floor is yours. Um, Folks, the reason why I wanted to introduce the R plus L equals J theory to you is because the first part of this chapter, this dream that Ned has, is one of those, uh, as Bubba likes to call, that's uh, at Fit and Trim on Twitter, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. He likes to call doing the math, and, and a lot of people consider... Uh, this dream to be one of the pieces that you do the math with. It's kind of like one of the pieces in the jigsaw puzzle in terms of putting together the R plus L equals J theory. Uh, first off, we get this mention uh, of Howland Reed, um, and uh, that's great uh, to know that Howland Reed's out there. Of course, from the television show, we know Jojen and Mira, his two children, and how we learn in this chapter that how uh, Ned and Reed were the only two survivors of this a seven-on-three battle that Ned dreams about. Also, if, as Ned says, Rhaegar had already lost at the Trident, and I.E. was dead, what you have to ask is, why were this big block, and that's three out of, what, seven normal Kingsguards that were here at this tower instead of being at other places, like at the battle, like Sir Barristan was? or even, as Ned questions, with uh, Eris' wife, the Queen, and his son, Viserys, at Dragonstone. Because I don't know exactly when... I'm assuming the Queen was pregnant with Daenerys at the time, right? Yeah, when she fled to Dragonstone. Yeah. She had Danny. So why do they send this William Derry off, um, who evidently is not a Kingsguard, right? Yeah, they said he's not a brother, um, and the Kingsguard do not flee. Right. So they send them off with a non-Kingsguard, and they stay here. Ned also hears Lyanna's voice and the whole promise me line that we've heard Ned think of before. So there are questions that you must ask as you start to do the math. Does this mean that Lyanna was at the Tower of Joy? Seems so, but that's for you to ask and answer yourself. Were these king's guard then guarding her if she was? Who do the king's guard supposed to protect? They're supposed to protect the royal family. So, then you have to ask yourself, is it possible that Lyanna and Rhaegar were secretly married? Is it possible that this bed of blood that Ned keeps talking about, is that possibly what you might think is a complication of a baby birth. If there was a baby, is it possible that the King's Guard were guarding the baby maybe even more than Lyanna, a possible Targaryen heir? 
these are the kinds of questions that you need to keep in mind as you read through these books. And, and as you go along, they're just little bits and pieces strung, sometimes easy to see, sometimes very jarring, sometimes uh, very subtle. But it's all of these little pieces of information that people a lot smarter than me have poured through all of these books to put together this R plus L equals J theory. So um, I encourage you to look at these pieces as we go along and then make your own conclusions. Um, you know, uh, keep, keep the possibilities and, and, and questions like this in mind as you continue to read. Uh, and um, you, you know, there are people who do not subscribe to R plus L equals J. There are people who think that John's parents, John's mother might be someone else. Um, they, but uh, this, this is one of the linchpins that I felt like as you go back and you reread these that really starts to put an accent on asking the right questions to figure out whether R plus L equals J works for you. Did I say that vaguely enough, Kelly, you think? No, that was specific. That was great, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't want to be too specific uh, because it's more about questions at this point than it is about answers to me. Yes, but, I like that emphasis on that because there are no definitives, and even when the books are finished, there may not be definitives. So I think it's important to encourage the inquiry and definitely keeping an open mind. And as much as the fandom is dedicated to R plus L equals J, I still kind of uh, have a little respect for people who hold out and say that it's somewhat something else, that that's too obvious or something. So I, I think there's a lot of value in just questioning and coming up with theories. It's a good exercise. Um, but this, I would say if, if putting the pieces together is the metaphor we're going for, this is like three of the four corner pieces of the puzzle is in this Tower of Joy dream. Yeah. It's a majority of where the, the theory comes from. And I'd say, like, the other corner piece might be the Night of the Laughing Tree or something. Mm-hmm. So um, I, could, I tried to look it up, and I think the other Kingsguard, I was trying to figure out who they were. So it was these three, Jamie and Selmy, and then there's another one, Derry, who died on um, the Trident. And one more, oh, Gaunt, who died at the Defiance of Duskendale, maybe that was earlier. So it's not clear where the other Knights of the King's Guard were, but you can kind of account for most of them <laughs> and why they weren't here. But this is, if Jamie's the one who killed Ares and um, Barristan was on the Trident and Darius was on the Trident, like this is a majority of the available King's Guard. Um, and some of the uh, <coughs> things I started questioning when I started um, kind of looking into this one was that uh, well, what is the actual O's that they take? Because the last kind of impactful quote that is, um, the Knights say is that we swore a vow. And it's hard to say how much of this um, is a fever dream and how much of this is real, but it kind of seems like most of it at least happened in one fashion, and in maybe his dream state he's um, making it a little bit more succinct or something, but uh, most of this we can kind of trust, I think. And, of course, keep questioning. Maybe we can't. Maybe it's mostly a dream brought on by the fact that Jory just died and one of the men with him was Jory's dad. And that could be the end of it. That could be the only connection that there should be made here. Mm. But uh, there is no in-text um, description of what the Kingsguard Oath is, like how we get the 
um, Knight's Watch oath that they have to take. But there is, um, I think I'm remembering this from Radio Westeros, where they kind of did like a breakdown of um, how we can kind of assume or maybe take on that some of the Kingsguard or some of the Night's Watch. One of them was taken from the other, so there's probably some similarities there. So there's a whole, like, there's a whole lot of statements that you get from Jamie and Barristan that are kind of allusions to what the oath is. We can kind of narrow it down to just protect the king, um, provide the king's guard protection to royals, their lovers, their mistresses and bastards, but only if they were directed to do so. Follow orders from the king and other royals in the hand and the small council. Um, serve at the king's pleasure. Keep the king's secrets protect the king's name and honor, and maintain chastity are like the main points that are com- given from the Jamie statements that he makes about being in the king's guard and Barristan mm-hmm. throughout all the books. So from all those, like that, we swore a vow that um, Gerald Hightower says at the end. It kind of seems like, is that an extra vow on top of the oath of the king's guard, or is mm. that... <laughs> Or is that the vow that they swore and they had to follow? Very good. Very good. And, and Ion Tron also had put in the chat, maybe uh, Rhaegar made them swear another vow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been totally possible, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it is totally possible. Also, uh, i got to do this on behalf of Ion Tron, who has been uh, tweeting uh, the, the folks who have watched the TV show. You may have seen the theory come out that uh, people are saying that possibly uh, – John and Mira, our brother and sister, Mira Reed. Uh, if you take into consideration that uh, the bed of blood could be from, as Iontrone points out, complications because she had twins, John and Mira, and you also take into the fact that, that uh, John was uh, brought into Winterfell and maybe Mira was brought into uh, uh, the... Uh, the reed. What what is the place where the reeds live? You know, Greywater so? Watch. Greywater Watch. Yeah. Uh, uh, by Howland. You know, each of them took a baby home with them. Yeah. Uh, so that that's part of that whole popular theory uh, that that's been out there on the interwebs lately. That actually somebody came up with a long time ago, um, and then you know somebody at the Huffington Post found it. And, and kind of spouted it as their own, which I was really upset about at the time. But I'm not so much anymore. Uh, just because Ion Tron, you know, endorses it so wholeheartedly here in the chat room. Uh, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, there, there, there's another wrinkle you can throw in, if, if you wish. Oh, yeah. There's, there's tons of possibilities. And I, I think this, um, and besides just being this R plus L equals J, um, cornerstone. It's just such a beautiful um, poetic kind of scene. Um, it's this, this like, call and response, like Ned asks, you know, we looked for you on the trident and they says we weren't there. Woe to this usurper if we had been. And it's just this really I don't know, it feels so epic and it could be because it's a dream, but it just I don't And I also think I, I watched a, um, a YouTube video if you guys want to find it. Since it was not in the show, um, that somebody made a YouTube video of the um, you know, the the art that's on the extras, I think it was explained on that. And then um, they took that art and um, and put it in with the uh, 
um, Rory Detrice reading of it and put some music in the background and then added in Ned waking up at the end of the, um, like he did in the episode, he wakes up and ah, it's really well done. And then the music makes it even more epic. So. <laughs> oh, this is one of those, you can just feel the power in, in, in a scene like this. And, and it, it just would be really un, unfortunate, I think, if this was just, if this didn't have consequence. Yeah. Very good. And it's interesting. Uh, the reason why I, I, one of the reasons why I put so much validity in what's happening in Ned's dream is because the people that he um, remember specifically and most intensely are the King's Guards themselves because they were the enemy. They were the, the, the you know, that was the, the most intense thing for Ned about that. But because the other men all died so long ago as well, he can't remember them as well. They seem more like ghosts to him in the dream. Yeah, it makes it like either more tragic or more epic or both. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Both. Yeah, it can be both. Um, did we say who the um, the other guys were? They were, it was seven against three, and I guess you can kind of see why it was seven, um, why only two of them lived, and that these guys were really, really good swordsmen, these Knights of the Kingsguard. Um, Gerald Hightower was the Lord Commander. Um, Oswald went. It does not say much about him. Um, he was at the Tourney of Heron Hall. That's about it. And then Arthur Dane, known as the Story of the Morning, and he's the one who knighted Jamie, and he's got some more stuff that we can talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, and these um, seven, these six that were with Ned, one, I mean, we're talking Jory's dad, um, Bucket's wool of the Mountain Clans, uh, Theo Wall. Uh, you can just picture all these northern guys and how it would take seven of them and two of them kind of barely making it to take down these three knights of the King's Guard. And it didn't make me wonder why there weren't more. Like, Ned had just, he just said how he came from King's Landing. He lifted the siege on um, uh, Storm's End and he just brought the seven of them to go to this uh, Tower of Joy to save his sister. Are you serious on why it was just seven? Ah, I have no thoughts about that. It's a holy number, maybe, but Ned's definitely not of the faith, so that doesn't make much sense. <laughs> um, Seven and three are nice numbers. Yeah, I, I guess. Maybe it's just more artistic that way. Um, oh, and the other ones are just um, Howland Reed, <laughs> a small man, uh, William Dustin, and uh, Sir Mark Risewell, which is weird because it doesn't who he is in the appendix or how he's related to the Risewells that we just met in um, theory. And then Ethan Glover, who was a squire to Brandon Stark. So these aren't like fighters, like like these knights. So Do do we suspect that he was expecting to find any King's Guard there? Maybe he was just a, a, a party he was taking to go after Liana. It could be that, or it could be he knew what he would find and he didn't want <laughs> witnesses. So he took men he trusted and no more. Ah. Could be one or the other. Yeah, that could be it too. Very much so. Um, is there anything not dream related in your notes? <laughs> A little bit. So there's um so then Ned wakes up and he's um talks to Van Poole and then he has to talk to Robert and Robert brings 
thirsty. So it's just kind of an interesting um, dynamic and why Cersei is there. And she doesn't know what Ned knows yet, but Ned is kind of like watching her when he tells the king about the brothel and what he found there. And it's kind of found that interesting. I didn't really know why he was watching her just yet because he doesn't know um, about the children yet. But he does watch her, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know why. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why either. So maybe he just has suspicions or something that about her family um, being related with the murder and all the other stuff before. If uh, if the, whatever um, John Aaron was investigating had something to do with that, and that's why the, the Lannisters had him killed, so he thinks, then maybe that would give her cause to flinch or something. Looks suspicious. <laughs> he's yeah. look. He's right to look at her, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and then I just liked that uh, Robert had the um, the chain with the king's hand in his pocket the whole time. So he he went into that room knowing he was going to forgive Ned and was going to give him the the job back and make him take it. <laughs> yeah, which Cersei actually called it out on, um, more or less uh, before he ran her off. Uh, she said, she more or less tells him, you know, you were just going to come in here and, 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 and make peace when really we ought to be having this guy's, you know, head on a spike, I guess, is what she was thinking. Oh, yeah. And it was hilarious looking back at Tyrion's chapter and how he was doubtful that she would be able to see the opportunity in this and would just focus on the insult, which is exactly what she did. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He knows his sister. Yeah, he knows his sister. And for a little bit of real talk, I'll I'll be honest here. Cersei needling Robert like that, I totally understood why he hit her. I am not condoning queen beating, wife beating, any of that. I definitely am not. But she is so needling him. They've been married for 15 years. She knows exactly what to say to get under his skin and hits it like bullseye with like two sentences <laughs> yeah. not her first time um, like I don't know maybe she's been like holding that one back and I just I couldn't figure out why she was so um, antagonizing him right there like like why she was so insistent on being there and getting at Ned I mean I guess she's well do you think that was an in interest of protecting her own secret Making sure that Ned didn't maybe, say anything. Maybe like this is, we don't have much on Cersei at this point, so we don't know if she's even aware of his um, inquiries. If she's aware of like what well, John true. Was, was. I guess in in Bran's second chapter, we kind of hear that they that Cersei was concerned what John Aaron might have told his wife or something like that. So she might have known what he was researching, but or what he was investigating, but. It's hard to say without knowing having any characters that have anything close to Cersei. But right. I thought it was either that, um, like Tyrion said, she was just insulted and wanted to. Cause she's not actually mad about Tyrion, right? <laughs> uh, there would seem to be no indication of that based on any, uh, you know, uh, the, the way Tyrion seems to think that she thinks about him, or. Um, you know, especially we know from the television show that she has no love for him at all. 
So. Yeah, so, and I think we might have known that um, from Varys might have told, either the Varys or Littlefinger told Ned that with him being there and being close to the king was the most biggest threat to Cersei, and she knew it or something like that. Mm. But that's yeah. the only thing I could think of, that she just wanted to kind of wedge her way in there and make it difficult for them to have camaraderie. Well, and, and she's just mad because, uh, you know, her brother got run out of town because he got mad about what happened, you know, about what Ned's uh, wife did to Tyrion. Yeah, she's, I guess she's kind of playing the lights of the game here, like trying to spread her own narrative. Yeah. Well, I, you know, she just, she, it was much easier when Jamie was around. No, definitely. <laughs> yeah. She probably doesn't like that. Yeah. That makes sense. Anything okay. else? No. Right. <laughs> Most of my notes were the, the Tower of Joy. Right on. Well, uh, why don't we rank these chapters in our order of preference? You want to go first or me? Uh, you go first. You never I'll go first. Well, uh, naturally, because I, I feel like, like you mentioned, this is a, a big linchpin and a major theory for the overall story, uh, that dream. i got to go Eddard 10 first. Um, I'm then going to go uh, Tyrion. Uh, next, uh, just because of the cleverness and the inner monologue and, and all of those lovely things that, that we typically love about Tyrion. Um, been a good, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of split between Daenerys and Bran, but I think I'm going to go Bran next because it was just exciting to see him get to ride and everything, plus you have, uh, you, you do see some vulnerability in, in, in Rob, and, and that's explored a little bit. Um, there's a slight bit of foreshadowing in, in the whole thing about Theon, uh, if you want to stretch it the way I do. Um, and then the Daenerys stuff was very good. It's just that uh, it was the least exciting to me of, of all of it, other than the thought about the fact that that, that prophecy um, about that all the Kalasar shall return to us based off rock at some point. Yeah, it's hard to maintain excitement for Danny when we. This is only her fourth chapter, and we're halfway through the book. Yeah, <laughs> Ned's tenth, you know. <laughs> right. So it's kind of hard to maintain any momentum with her. I get that, but I will agree with you to a point, Matt, because we can never fully agree. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like Ned's uh, Tower of Joy dream. Uh, that was great and super sad it was not in the season in the in the show I think I'm not sure why but I think it would have been beautiful and in my head canon it's in there um, and then Tyrion because that was like almost taken verbatim and put in the show if you remember some of that stuff yeah so good I mean they couldn't improve on it like 10 years later 15 years later I don't know how long ago it was but <laughs> <laughs> they could not improve on, on George's dialogue and except for his um Confession. I do. I do like the show Confession. <laughs> Slightly better. It's hilarious. But then I do have to go with Danny and her uh, her her experience, this different side of the Dothraki that maybe a lot of outsiders don't get to see, and they just see the barbaric savages all the time. Just kind of this different, reverent side of them. And then I still liked Bran because it had direwolves, but they were a little yucky. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, had to be knocked down, but the this is the the nastier side of direwolves. Oh, oh, blue snakes coming out of a girl's belly! Come oh on, <laughs> so what, what, what's so wrong about that? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Feedback is next. 
And I'm going to start off by playing this voicemail. So I got to switch the mics here real quick. Hey, um, I didn't even knew new podcast Miracle came back after the uh, hiatus, but I've spent the last couple of nights um, catching up on everything, and I really miss your voice, and I miss the show. Y'all are doing a really great job. Um, you're being a little bit too nice to George R. R. Martin, but whatever. It's all cool. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say I'm glad you're back and hope everything's okay, and if everything's not okay, I hope just you can deal with everything that's going on. All right. All right, and thank you, uh, caller, for that voicemail. I wish you would have left your name so I could uh, call you by name and say thank you for the voicemail. Kelly, are are we too nice to George? Oh, God, probably. (laughs) I'll be the first to admit that I'm I'm far too perky and positive for most people, so... Uh, (laughs) If you, if I would, I will take the bullet on that one. That one's probably a lot of me. Um, I don't know. What would you, if you could be critical? What would you be critical about, George? Um, it's very hard to be critical for me of the writing himself. I will say, uh, and this is this is no spoiler. I hope that you all get this far into reading the books. I will say that I felt it was a mistake for the story to continue to expand from book four onward. I felt like that even with seven books, he already had so much going on out there that he really didn't need to throw in a whole lot of elements, uh, of these extra elements that he has. Now, has it made, it, has it made the story exciting? Yeah, sure. Um, but now it seems so expansive that you look at just a two-book resolution to all of this stuff almost just seems impossible, and I feel like that it's that kind of thing that has actually given George... Uh, trouble and is why he's having trouble finishing these books definitely actually i think that's a that's a good criticism and i think totally legit uh unless it somehow is concluded you know and that's the hard part about that one is we don't know how it's going to be wrapped up and how it's going to be tied in i mean danny kind of felt that isolated and, and strange in a way but but again i guess it's uh you know, if you feel like maybe there is no way to wrap it up for it to be satisfying, then it can be a criticism. Yeah, I, I, I just, uh, how about, I mean, it, what would be your one criticism if you had to have a criticism of George other than mine? Um, no, I, he, he's not publishing a book on your birthday? Is that is that your criticism? It is very disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I probably wish he had um, other ways of, um, like, sometimes there'd be something like, I was looking back on, when was the last time Danny stood up to Viserys in the last chapter, which was, like, months ago that we read, and it was something like he grabbed her chest inappropriately, and it just seems like he kind of uses stuff like that to demean women sometimes, and that's, it is demeaning, and I think it's a, it's true abuse, and that's a way to show that, but it just kind of seems like there's, too much of it and it's not creative enough and maybe I don't know like I thought <laughs> Tyrion's cussing in this chapter we just read was really creative I thought like and it kind of stood out because it was um, uncommon for Tyrion to, to kind of cuss like that so I don't know I feel like there's other ways to demonstrate um, 
vulgarity maybe or to make someone dislikable or to demean someone if that's what you're trying to convey <clears throat> be more creative in that avenue would make me a little happier <laughs> but Understood. then again it's, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable so I, I'm too understanding I guess <laughs> I can't change it I think that's the problem it's like no matter if I dislike it I can't change it so I just find a way to find value in it so I don't oh, know. here's what you do once he finishes the series um, then you go back and you rewrite it the way you want to. <laughs> Take things verbatim if you have to, but just just for you know, put get your little spreadsheet out, and I'll make and, my own change and, and and make your change and with, with all of your changes, and then just uh, you know, copy and paste where you need to, and then write your changes in, and then you'll have your perfect book. Sounds like a lot of work, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, it's easier just to be open-minded and accepting. <laughs> Oh, it's so noble. Darn it. Uh, how about this email from Adam, uh, who says, Matt, I know you all mentioned you were going to take a break when the show resumes in April, but have you considered doing a read of A Night of the Seven Kingdoms? It might not be as wordy as the core books, but there's plenty of content in each story to lend itself to lengthy discussions that tie into the overall series. Just a suggestion. Thanks. Thank you, Adam. Um, yes, we do have a, you know, I, I gave away a copy of A Night of the Seven Kingdoms to, to get more uh, iTunes reviews last fall. And uh, uh, we do plan on going through that book. I just don't know when exactly. Uh, the problem being, I, I do want to just totally take a break uh, during the television show. I feel like um, people who are, 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 are fans of the television show don't need to be distracted by me rattling off a bunch of theories uh, while they're thinking about what's going on in the TV show, uh, which, you know, as I said before, uh, season six now, uh, some of the theories that I would rattle off might be uh, totally, um, you know, unimportant by the time we get to the end of season six if the, if the TV series is any indication of where the books are going to go. Um, so I, I do want to keep that 10-week uh, period in there uh, completely podcast-free so that everybody can get their chance to enjoy the television show that are going to. And then when we return, it's kind of my hope that we'll get an announcement about Winds of Winter um, sometime during the course of the television show. It would make sense because uh, that's when all of the focus is on A Song of Ice and Fire and on Game of Thrones. Um, it would make sense if George could come up with some kind of a new deadline uh, to announce, and based on when Winds of Winter, if announced at that time, uh, when it will be coming out, then, you know, if by some miracle he said, oh, we're going to come out with it in July, which I don't think is going to happen, but if he did, then we would wait on A Night of the Seven Kingdoms and go straight into Winds of Winter and read that book. Um, if he says it's going to be like Christmas or something, then probably the next thing that, or if we don't hear anything at all, then probably when we come back, we'll do a couple of theories casts, and then we'll get right into the Night of the Seven Kingdoms. So uh, thank you uh, for that email, Adam. We have a scathing email from Adrian Kelly, and I think it's focused mostly at me and you for defending Catlin so much. I'm ready for it. All right, here we go. Uh, and Adrian, thank you again so much for this email. Uh, I love your thoughts here. Um, says, sorry I'm late with my feedback, and this is really long email, but I couldn't get my eyes out from, back, from the, the back of my head to see the screen and type from all of the eye rolling I did from the week eight episode. 
Before I proceed, I want to say that I love the podcast, and I'm so happy to have you guys back. I also want to let Kelly know that she is my girl, and I love her insight, but I may be pulling her card a little here, uh, so let's begin. What's up with all the Catlin is a victim campaigning? I'm not one of the people who loves to bash on Catlin because I do like her character, and I probably would have reacted the exact same way she did if I'd have been in, a posi- in her position. But come on, guys. Cat is basically Cersei cloaked in stark colors, so people tend to write off her mistakes and selfishness. I actually came to this realization when we started getting Cersei POV chapters and thought to myself, where have I, where have I gotten this feeling of frustration while reading another POV character? Oh, well, yeah, Catelyn. I always hear the kids-slash-family excuse is applied to Catelyn's rash behavior, but a lot of things Cersei does and how she acts is rooted in a prophecy regarding her kids as well, and I don't hear anyone giving her props for that. Perhaps she, she would if she was writing on the coattails of a Stark name, too. Why is it that Cat goes around making all of these crazy decisions when things blow up in her face? It is, oh, why is it that if Kat goes around making all of these crazy decisions when things blow up in her face, it is everyone else's fault? Um, There is so much I can bring up, but I will highlight a few things with just the material from the past couple of weeks to keep this as brief as I can. Okay. Uh, People in the cast said that Tyrion was being inappropriate to Kat when he brought up her maidenhood gossip and asking her to take a tumble with him. I would agree that his behavior wasn't gentlemanly, but I would argue that she forfeited that respect from him when she failed to treat, treat him with respect that his station deserved, not only as a lord, but as a brother to the queen, when she decided to accost him in such a way. This directly led to the Jamie-slash-Ned fight scene but according to Matt, Jamie was the bad guy there, too. Cat um, decides to go gallivanting across the country and gets recognized by Tyrion, so she seizes, and it is Tyrion's fault because... So she seizes him, and it is Tyrion's fault because he backed her into a corner by calling her out. Come on, guys. She could have easily said she was heading to River Run to see her dad. After all, it's an easy ride down to River Run. Quote. Um, It was an awesome scene, to say the least, but unnecessary. I have to say that the action was not very, quote, family duty honor of her at all. She didn't think about the repercussions that seizing Tyrion would bring her family, nor was she doing her duty that was directed by her husband when they last left, and it definitely was not honorable to let Tyrion be served with the king's justice as befits his station. She made the decision, understandable or not, the fallout is hers to bear. She's not the victim. Uh, Yeah, I can agree with that to a certain point, Adrian. Um, She does have this fresh evidence of the dagger still on her mind. Um, She's probably panicking a little bit. I'm not saying that her decision was a good decision, um, but ultimately... Um, seizing Tyrion, at least to me, Kelly, makes it seem like, you know, if if she is convinced that Tyrion is the guy, then she is thinking about her family because getting this guy off the board protects Bran. 
who's to say Tyrion wouldn't try something again if she believes that Tyrion is the guy, right? Oh, for sure. And if he was capable of doing that in their own home in Winterfell, and he's about to go to King's Landing where her husband is and her two daughters are, it kind of seems um, risky to let him continue, you know, in King's Landing where they're not surrounded by entirely Winterfell people and they're a lot more vulnerable. Um, Yeah, I I don't know if if she could have pulled off the I'm on my way to Riverrun at the the crossroads, because I think it's between Riverrun and King's Landing, not Winterfell and Riverrun. But whatever um, excuse she could have come up with, I think letting him go would have endangered her family. But we did talk about in the episode how she could have taken him to King's Landing. She could have taken him to Riverrun or even to Winterfell. Like, she could have said, I'm taking you to River Run and then went to Winterfell or something else that was smarter, definitely. Like, the way she ended up doing it was, in her mind in the moment, made the most sense because Lysa had information that she needed. But, yeah, I think she would have been smarter, too. I mean, like, even if she did say, I'm taking him to Winterfell and go to Winterfell, once she got past the neck, she would have been fine. Like, she could have um, stopped at the first place that had men and had them go guard the neck, and then she would have been home clear. There are other, definitely I want to acknowledge that there are other ways that she probably could have made, handled it after she got Tyrion, but I think she had to take him. Right. Uh, and, and another uh, just aspect of it, in terms of doing the duty that Ned gave her, she did send the raven. We found out this week that she had sent the raven to Rob. So um, she did manage to do that. Um, also, I still think of Catelyn. I think of Catelyn and Ned both as victims here, simply for the fact that they've been duped. It was Lysa's letter that started this whole thing. It was... It was Littlefinger's lie that has has firmly convinced Catelyn that she's in the right here. Um, So, granted, she's um, maybe not making the best decision, but she's making the best decision she can based on the evidence that has been given her. Yeah, and I think we talked about a little bit with some of that um, uh, hindsight bias that we're able to have as readers and all that other information that we are given as readers is hard to um, kind of filter out when you try to make sense of Catelyn's decision. But I definitely want to, I never got to be on the, the reread with Cersei when Cersei's early chapters were there. And I really do sympathize with Cersei too in terms of her motivation. And by the end of it, um, like what we saw on the show when she had to do her walk of shame or walk of punishment, I definitely sympathize for her. And, um, I think I can sympathize with motivations equally, but I mean, you never have Catelyn planning to murder somebody. Like you, you know, like you know. I mean, their circumstances are different. So maybe you know, whereas Catelyn has a loving relationship with her husband, and Cersei has a like almost abusive, painful relationship with Robert. You know, that can be a circumstantial difference that you can judge them differently by. But still, like, murder's bad. Like, murder's, like, you know, playing to murder people and, and doing stuff um, so um, sneakily the way she does and without honor. Some of that stuff is more of what she gets hate for, I think, and less sympathy. That clarifies where my sympathies lie. Gotcha. All right. Like, women. 
Well, Adrian is not done with us, so let's go on. Uh, while we are here, I also want to disagree in the fact uh, with Kelly and the fact that she stated she didn't think that Sansa or Cersei could pull off what Catelyn did here. I think both of them would have been able to do it. We've seen Cersei be able to charm and manipulate her words sweetly to get people to do what she wants. Another similarity between the two women. Okay. Uh, and recall that one of Sansa's strong suits is her knowledge of history and house sigils, which was first shown when she met Renly and Sir Barristan. So yes, my girl Sansa, who is a super interesting character, by the way, could do it for sure. Moving along, Kat decides to drag her drama up to the veil, and you was upset at Lysa for her reaction to Kat. Let's put this in BFF terms. I tell you a secret or suspicion of mine about a mutual dangerous enemy so that you can watch your back. Instead, you go and make a huge scene, bring the man of the family that murders children and extinguishes entire lines of families and drag me into the middle of it while my life is also in chaos uh, because I killed my hubby who was in the military, who was the military leader of my realm. And it is my fault that I don't even drop everything and cater to your every whim need i say more uh also and just because i am crabby i didn't get to say so when he first appeared on the page i hate sam (laughs) okay uh and to prove that i am a fan of kelly however i did homework for her i live in atlanta georgia and stone mountain is 825 feet tall thank you for letting me get some of the thoughts off my chest matt i have a super crackpot theory that i would love to share with you at a later date when i am not too lazy to type it up or not drunk from taking shots because you all are blaming someone else for the mess that Kat made. Laugh out loud. Just killing, kidding. Love you, Kelly. Uh, do kind of want to answer the whole thing about Lysa here. She killed her husband. <laughs> uh, how, if you have that knowledge and you're going through in a reread, how can you not be upset at Lysa for yelling at Catelyn? Now, I could understand maybe on a first read. Maybe. But... She's a loony. She killed her husband. Yeah, I think she's super mad. She's like, I had a plan for how all of this was going to go down, and you're ruining it. <laughs> this was going to be perfect. I was going to marry Littlefinger, and all my dreams were going to come true. And now you're making a mess of it because you're doing the honorable thing. <laughs> it seems really petty. Um, and if she, I would say, yes, I would understand her being mad, but, like, civility. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm sorry that your son was crippled and tried to be murdered. Some words of comfort. Like, we're both in a shitty spot, in a crappy spot. Sorry. (laughs) You know, like a little bit of, of like, she didn't even mention Bran. I mean, they have a kid kind of the same age. Like, it just seems she's so selfish. And, yeah, definitely on a reread, she has no excuses. (laughs) Well, Adrienne, I do want to thank you so much for the email. I love hearing uh, people's opinions, and I'm sorry if uh, our defense of Catelyn is, is too much for you to take. I, 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 I do apologize. Oh, uh, and uh, call in your um, theory if you don't want to type it up. Yeah, you can do that. You can leave a voicemail. That's 314-669-1840. You can leave a voicemail uh, like the gentleman who I do not know your name. Please call back and say who you are so that we can thank you and take credit for your call or, or call in with your own thoughts about these chapters. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on those too. And have some shots before you call. That'd be funny. <laughs> I have some shots before I start talking. Can't you tell? 
<laughs> no, uh, actually, I don't. And that's even scarier. That is. I say, that explains a lot. <laughs> Explains nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next week, folks, our chapters are oh, Adrian's favorite, Catelyn seven, uh, John five, uh, Tyrion six, and Eddard eleven. You can find a list of all of the weekly chapters at podcastwinterfell.com in the Game of Thrones reread tab. And reminder: next week will be our final podcast for a few weeks. I have to do some touring uh, with the um, Modern American Dance Company doing our Liquid Road show. Uh, but we will be resuming in March, and we'll, we'll finish up the book, uh, hopefully, like I'm thinking, like the week of the premiere of the Game of Thrones um, Season 6 premiere. So uh, we'll get it out of the way just in time for you to uh, be able to concentrate on the television show. Kelly, you held your own, girl. You beat me up pretty good. Actually, you agreed with me more on this particular episode and I think we've ever agreed on anything before. How did that happen? Uh, I think I just I feel bad for you, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, usually like there's other people here, and and they're like, you know, kissing your butt a little bit. Everyone loves you, so I gotta like, you know, counter that a little bit. But right now it's just me, so I have to even it out a little bit. Otherwise, I think you'd cry after we stop talking. And I feel right, bad. you're right. I still would. <laughs> Totally would. Uh, uh, folks, we do have some spoiler talk for you after the end music as well, but if you haven't read all of the books, then I would encourage you to go ahead and read all of the books and then come back and listen to that portion. In the meantime, here's Axel Foley to tell you how to contact me. Spoilers, 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 spoilers. Got to start off with an email from Taryn uh, in our spoiler section because I wasn't really sure whether I could put this in the regular section or not. Because um, it regards the faceless men, and there are some differences, I think, uh, in the books and the TV show regarding that. Um, Taryn says, We all know that House Baelish is a young house that was created when Peter's great grandfather, correct me on this part, fought with House Corbray during the Blackfire rebellions. We all know that Littlefinger's rise was due to him making a whole lot of money in Gulltown. We know from the later Arya chapters from A Feast Dance that the Faceless Men rarely talk about money. From this, I have two questions. One, do you think Littlefinger is using the Iron Bank, or is this proof that House Baelish is an Iron Bank plant? Two, do you believe that Littlefinger's explanation about how they can't use the Faceless Men is legit? On this, my impression is that the money didn't mean anything to the faceless men, but a life for a life was usually the price. Something Littlefinger can't pay yet. Okay. Um, what do you think? I was looking that up because I want to be accurate. And yes, the sigil uh, of House Baelish before Littlefinger changed it was. Um, I don't know if he changed it. He took a personal sigil. But the House Baelish is the Titan of Bravos. Ted. <laughs> Which is interesting. But, um, yeah, the um, the Faceless Men tend to take a prize that was, or take a payment, I guess, that is a, um, something of value to the person hiring them. So, it's, it raises if the person's really rich, and it doesn't matter what the what they're asked, being asked to do. It's um, 
it correlates more with like it's directly correlated with the um, what the person can pay. So if it's someone really, really rich and money doesn't matter to them, they'll say, yeah, give me your firstborn or give me your daughter or something like that. Uh, a flat tax. Yeah, it's it's more like, um, <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, it's like, let's see, you're worth 10,000 gold dragons. So I will take 7,000 of them. You're worth 100 gold dragons. So I will take 70 of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a distinct... Um, ratio, you know, and, and which does seem to imply that they don't necessarily need the money or it's not about like status or anything like that. It's about, I don't know, this belief that they have. Um, how do they keep, of, Kelly, how do they keep all those faces refrigerated? <laughs> they got a nice house down there? Well, it is down a bunch of stairs and I don't know, it, it must be cold, right? Maybe. Also, magic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, magic. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. Who knows? Uh, maybe ice. Maybe they import ice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, I almost sent you this gift I saw of somebody, like, shoveling ice and or, like, taking blocks of ice and putting it down this slide onto a boat. I was like, this is how it's done. So I found a video of it. So I'll, I'll maybe I'll forward that to you. Please do. It, it answered a lot of questions. <laughs> answered many, many questions. Excellent. Okay. All Back right. to Taryn's question. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is um, suspicion that there's a lot of um, connection between uh, Littlefinger and Essex more so than is let on. Um, but there's definitely not enough evidence for it. <laughs> Suspicions, but no evidence. All right. Good questions, Taryn. Anything else on that, Kelly? Uh, I may want to look more into it. So uh, if Taryn wants to message me or something, I will uh, send that to me. I'll, I'll look into it for him and, and give him what I can find. That's the kind of stuff I need time for. Sorry, I'm slow. <laughs> <laughs> not, not so quick on my feet, especially at the end of the cast, and I haven't written notes on it yet. <laughs> uh, uh, we also got some tweets from at Nisum, N-I-S-U-M, uh, regarding Arya and Kat. Um He says, who, uh, and at Nisum asks, is Arya walking into a cat? She kept working and watched the kindly man through the cat's eyes while she was working. But it seems Bran can't do anything while working, and she is Arya and the cat at the same time. It seems different. Um, I thought of it as working. I, I think um, there is, even demonstrated in this week's chapter, Kelly, we talked about how it seemed like the, the, the wolf knew to get out of the way of the knife, right? The dire wolf? Um, yeah, Bran, Bran was, Yeah, Bran was perfectly alert uh, at that point. Plus, remember, at that point, Arya is also blind. She has no use for her eyes. Um, now, I know the television show has made Bran seem like he's, he's kind of frozen, every time he works, and, and everybody who they've shown work, um, it seems like they just sit in one place and the kind of the whites go over their eyes and everything. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not so certain that you, you're not capable of, of multitasking uh, if you have that power once you learn how to multitask using that power. Maybe, although, I mean, we had a pretty clear idea when, and obviously Bran's not a master at it yet, but when he was in Hodor, when he was uh, fighting off the ice zombie 
things. <laughs> you know, like he looked down and saw his body. Do you remember that? In, um, was that in Feast or Dance? It would have been Dance. I don't think Bram was in Feast. Yeah, yeah. Again, so yeah, the um, but yeah, he he did look down and and see his body. So it's possible that it's not like um a common thing in in new wargs to be able to to um coexist in both. Um, Vermeer was pretty experienced, and he seems not to be able to do it either, though. That's a good point. Um, I would imagine if anybody could do it, Blood Raven might be able to. But he's also like naturally prone; like he can't move. So he probably has really like if it's if Wargames like a muscle, he has exercised it to Olympic levels. So um, maybe Bran will be able to learn how to do it. But as far as Arya goes, I, I think it was just the fact that she was blind that she wouldn't need to be distracted by I'm using your eyes, not my eyes at all, kind of a thing. Like that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's an interesting question at Neeson, uh something that we might want to explore. Uh, they, were, they were talking specifically about in, in Bravos, right? Not the chapter we just read. Uh, right. Yeah, I don't think she was working into the cat into the cat in the chapter we just read. No. Yeah. I no, I think they, I think they were just talking about uh, we because I think Stephanie brought up something about uh, Arya and the fact that she can work into cats. Mm. That's where this in the spoiler section last week. So I think that's where this question came from. There were times that she worked into the cat and was just the cat when she was um, exploring, I think. But, so. See, I suspect that Arya is a lot more powerful work. She's still connecting with Nymeria all the way across the narrow sea without help of a Werewood network or anything else. In dreams. So maybe there's something special about that. Like it doesn't seem like she's doing it in well, consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Like in, 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 intentionally doing it. Right. Well, and neither was John in a couple instances. Where yeah. That definitely still indicates a really strong connection and maybe that correlates to a really strong power, but we don't really know that yet. It could just be... No matter where they are, they can do that. It's just a connection. Hmm. If she does it while awake, that would be super impressive. Because <laughs> it seems like even Vermeer couldn't do that and he had been like like trained on warging and stuff. So. Yeah, but was he ever that powerful? True, yeah. I mean, you can be practiced, but you can still not be as good at it. Like, you know, I can practice Mozart, uh, but I'll never play it as well as, as a concert pianist. Yeah, so the difference between a skill and a talent. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, my Mozart power is not as strong as <laughs> pick any concert pianist on tour now. Uh, Okay, so that's it for the feedback portion of the the spoiler section. What have you got for notes? For spoilers? Uh, Starting with Danny, we had um, that mention of the um, uh, Dash Kaleen. Make sure I'm saying that right. So um, Danny, in the House of the Undying, she has a vision um, in one of the rooms of naked crones kneeling before, kneeling to her before the mother of mountains, um, which reminded me of this kind of tied in with what Jorah's uh, kind of description of this, I don't know if you call it a prophecy, but that the Josh Kaleen kind of believes that the 
all the Kylosaurs will come back one day and that this will happen. Um, and kind of maybe tying in with that, maybe Danny is the stallion who mounts the world and that um, after Drogo died, I don't know if we wanted to go into who the Kalasar belonged to because it wasn't really in the show. So it's um, Jocko's. Uh, and after and Jacko was just part of um, Drogo's Kalasar. And a little bit later in this book, Danny and him kind of have like a falling out and he gets like such a jerk. And then um, she kind of swears that he and his men will plead for mercy, the mercy that they showed Iroy. Eroe is her name, I guess. But so she kind of vows to like get back at these guys, and this is the cal- the Kalasar cal- that comes up on her. So it's kind of hard to think that she's going to just say, "Well, like let's hang out and go back to Bass Dothrak together." But <laughs> so wait a minute. So this guy yeah. that took Drogo's Kalasar, half of them, yeah, half of them, was he one of Drogo's blood riders? No. Oh, okay. He was a co or something like that. Okay. Because the Blood Riders, yeah, in this chapter, I remember specifically seeing that the Blood Riders have oh, to die to go ride in the Nightlands with their with their call. Yeah. So, no, the, the, he was just a, um, one of the stronger guys in, in his Kalasar. And uh, I think they, um, he took half of the Kalasar while Danny was passed out while she had her miscarriage. And she found out that this one girl that she had saved during the um, attacks that Drogo was leading, he had abused her and ended up killing her. So Danny was super mad. Called him and his men out specifically out of all of the guys that had abandoned her. Gotcha. So it seems unlikely that she's going to, that, that there won't be conflict when um, the next season, the next book starts. So there's going to be something, there's some point B, I think, that has to happen between Danny and his, his um, encounters with Kalasar, and Danny gets back to Vastothrak and somehow fulfills some sort of prophecy of all the Kalasars coming back together. Well, the, the point B between A and C is Drogon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drogon, is, she's, she's going to hop up on top of him and say, uh, you want to die? You want to Yeah. If he, if he cooperates, you know, he's a little catty, so who knows? He might... Um, yeah, yeah. He might not make her work for her. Like, she might be kind of kidnapped for a while until he's like, all right, Mom, you're in trouble. I'll come save you again. And then, you know, but there will be some sort of conflict that comes in there that well, maybe she will have to learn how to tame him and, and ride him properly. But um, something will have to happen in between. Gotcha. But, but there is more evidence is that the, she had this vision of Mousy and dying. <laughs> ah, right on. Yeah, Very true. More exciting stuff, yeah. I don't want it to just be flavor, you know, that, that story of all the Kalasars coming back together. It's too epic. Yeah, me too. I like that. Uh, what else? Oh, and then in Bran, um, Theon sees Kyra. <laughs> and this is the name that stood out because I've been doing a lot of that research into the um, Grand Other Conspiracy and she's, um, she happens to be there and Oh well, she doesn't. But a, a <laughs> her namesake um, does. She's the girl that ended up helping Theon escape, but then being giving uh, Ramsay a good chase, so he named a pup after her. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's the girl. She's the girl that uh, he kind of flirted with in the winter town and made her blush. Yes. Yes. Also innocent and sweet here. Very cute. That. Yeah. Oh, he's talking yeah. about how good she is in bed, and then he says that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, she's a village girl. She's probably fine, and you know, not not super young or anything. I think it, it seemed okay. Like she liked it because from what it sounded like, <laughs> she was totally consenting. And he's kind of like this little Lord Lane. It was probably really exciting for her. And we all know Dion was pretty legendary. So I just thought it was kind of nice to see that it wasn't just all bad things for her in the story. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So what did you make of the brand saying it, almost, it felt almost as good as flying when he was describing writing? want to talk about that too much because not so much in the show. Well, I, I'll be honest. I just thought, for me, it was just, you know, we've had the, the, the few little chapters so far in the books that, that uh, when he was under and and the mm-hmm. crow was telling him to fly and, and then, of course, in the, in the TV show and later on in the books that uh, Blood Raven tells him that he will, he will fly. Yeah, like, but we don't have him having any like good experiences with it until um, I think he goes into the wearnet and uh, it's a little overwhelming. But even you know he does kind of describe just flying. But then he you know up until here though um, he doesn't have any good experiences with flying. It seems like it's kind of this thing that he's been associating with this bad memory that makes his stomach turn to stone. And kind of I don't know if he's reestablishing his, his comfort with the idea or, or, you know. Well, I was just going to say, man, you're eight years old. I, I mean, and while he, he doesn't mm-hmm. like the idea, you know, remember in the dream that he was having with, with uh, that we think Blood Raven was the crow talking to him, uh, he did manage to fly and he did enjoy it. That's true. Okay. Um, so I, I think that that's the experience, he, you know, he, he was feeling, uh, and he felt alive. And I think that this experience was making him feel alive again. And that's what that's a reference to. Okay. Maybe I just didn't remember that he did fly at the end. Yeah. Remember he kind of scoops up and he flies beyond the, the northern most part of the wall. And that's when he sees all of his, his little visions of shadows and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That does. I just didn't expect him to have, like, a positive association with it. Like, when he has all of these triggers now, when he tries to think of anything, it seems like that would be a trigger for him. But he does have a positive association with it, which is good. Yay. I didn't have anything for Tyrion besides some of the um, people that were in the room. Let's hear it. So some of them are actually the end up being the Lord's Declarant, especially um, Anya Wainwood. Anya Wainwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... There? No, uh, Albert Royce, uh, Nestor Royce, Lynn Corbray. Yeah, he accompanies the Lord's Declarant. But if you remember, he's one of Littlefinger's. Yeah, one of his plants. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I just meant that he was there at the meeting. Yes, yes. But so the point of the other ones being there, though, um, one of the hunters, um, the, the family of hunt, called Hunter. Um, the Lord right now who's there is really old, and the one that ends up being at the one of the Lord's declarant is his oldest son. But maybe he's there too. There's, um, Tyrion didn't recognize him. He's recognized um, I'm getting, 
yeah, he recognized the old man. He he said Lord Hunter, but he didn't say his family or anything. So that could have been his son's there because his son ends up being a Lord Declarant. But the curious that they've all seen Catelyn so recently, and then they see this girl who's Sansa aged uh, and looks like Sansa's mother and came out of nowhere. And coincidentally, a girl Sansa, the actual girl Sansa is missing but they don't make this connection. I, I didn't realize how recently they had seen Catelyn and how much Littlefinger insists that she looks like Catelyn. It's very interesting that even like Lady Anya Wynwood didn't pick up on the fact that that was Sansa. Ah. Uh-huh. Because she's even agreed for Sansa to marry her ward, uh, Harry the heir. Right. Even though she thinks she's Elaine right now. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and do you think that possibly it's something like this that caused Dave and Dan to go have and go ahead and have Sansa declare herself in a television show? Yeah, I think it's a lot easier. Kind of like when we talked about in the Catelyn chapter, where it's really easy to for, take for granted that people recognize each other in this day and age. He George goes through a lot of painstaking description to and um, reinforces that. Nobody recognizes people here in this world because there is no constant seeing people's faces that we have these days. So it might have been too foreign of a concept to try to put into a show. Right. Just avoiding all of that identity stuff like they did with Barristan. I don't know, maybe even the kindly man. We don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But that's kind of cool. People present that on a reread, it's nice to go back and be like, okay, I know I've seen that name before. <laughs> right on. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Uh, for Eddard, anything? No, and I love that we can talk about RNL J. Um, uh, okay. I didn't... Oh, no, go ahead. Arthur, da- Arthur Dane, just him, um, that he was, uh, I did find the source, so I don't want to say it too strongly, but there was an indication that he helped Rhaegar kidnap Lyanna. Is this is a theory. Maybe. Maybe it's written somewhere. Okay. I wrote that down next to Arthur Dane because he was there and Okay. Oh <laughs> and one of the guys that's with uh Ned is um Lord William Dustin. And I'm like, why does that name sound familiar? Because he was the husband of Barbary Dustin, who's uh, so noteworthy in A Dance with Dragons and again in all of the uh, GNC theories and stuff. Right. That lady comes up a lot. So. Very good. Is that it? <laughs> yes, it is it. Sorry, list of people and where they come up again later. That was my, those are my spoilers. <laughs> Not super exciting, but I don't know. Maybe someone was curious. All right, well, she's at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. I'm at Winterfell Pod. We'll see you next time. She is Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.